welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Episode 170. What the heck? That's a lot of episodes. To all of you who've been with me from the beginning, I see you, and I appreciate you. To all who have not been here from the beginning, but who are here now, welcome to the jungle. This week in immigration news, a federal judge held that the new Biden asylum limitations are illegal, while the governor of Texas constructed a medieval blockade on the Rio Grande. Seven cases for your consideration, all over the place. Let's dive in. Starting off with Chen v. Garland, published by the Second Circuit on July 25th, 2023. This case is about credibility. Mr. Chen is from China. He testified in immigration court that he practices Falun Gong, which the Chinese government considers a, quote, illegal cult, end quote, and bans. He began practicing in China in secret in 2009, but the next year, police showed up at his home. They took him to the police station, and at the police station, they took Mr. Chen into a dark room, interrogated him, and beat him. Upon his release, he was told to report every month and to avoid all Falun Gong activities. But he was detained and beaten again when he returned to the police station the next month, as he was told to. So, he testified. He fled to the U.S. in late 2010. He testified that police officers continued to search for him in China. He submitted an asylum application and affidavits from his wife and cousin in support. Mr. Chen's wife also testified at the removal hearing. The immigration judge denied, believing the application untimely as it was not filed within a year of Mr. Chen's entry into the United States, and because the IJ believed Mr. Chen not credible. The BIA affirmed. Now it's true that, at least following the Real ID Act, circuits afford significant deference to IJ credibility determinations. Although, quote, trivial inconsistencies or omissions, end quote, don't usually cut it. 
But then again, heck, in the Second Circuit, quote, an IJ may also rely on the omission of important information from an applicant's asylum statement in a Form I-589, end quote, to make an adverse credibility determination. But then on the other hand, omissions aren't as probative as actual contradictions, explained the Second Circuit, especially if the later statement merely supplements what was provided in an asylum application previously. What we're trying to determine with all this is whether the inconsistency or the omission is probative of credibility. But what is probative anyway? Quote, the probative value of a particular omission depends on whether the omitted facts are ones that a credible petitioner would reasonably have been expected to disclose under the relevant circumstances. End quote. And for this reason, hold on to your horses or other large animals, everyone. Quote, Petitioners are not required to list every incident of persecution on their I-589 statement, end quote. That is the quote. And after all, as I often say on the pod, what's the point of all this asylum statement stuff anyway if the non-citizen is going to testify live in court eventually? Doesn't it seem that the point of requiring asylum statements is to set up a non-citizen for an omission or inconsistency? Against that legal backdrop, Mr. Chen won. Because, indeed, the IJ's adverse credibility finding was based primarily on an omission. Apparently, the Form I-589 asylum application, quote, omitted any mention of the police hitting him in the face and leg when he reported to the police station in October 2010, stating only that he was humiliated and insulted, end quote. But as the Second Circuit saw it, Mr. Chen did provide these details in his asylum application. And even if he hadn't, this beating would, quote, merely supplement rather than contradict his asylum statement, end quote. The reason, the court explained, is because, quote, throughout his removal hearing, Mr. Chen equated being hit by the police with being humiliated, end quote. So when his asylum statement said he was humiliated, he very well may have been referring to actually being hit, too. Gotta account for cultural context, or at least manner of speech. In any event, quote, applicants are not obligated to list every example or incident of persecution in their asylum statements, end quote. That's the second time the Second Circuit has said that in this decision. And this omission here was nothing, explained the panel, compared to some other Second Circuit published decisions. Give those cases a read, including Pavlova v. INS from 2006. Nor was Mr. Chen's testimony about the 2010 beating internally inconsistent. Quote, variously using the words hit, push, and shake, end quote, is not inconsistent. Nor was Mr. Chen really even testifying to different things. The IJ seems to have been mistaken, said the Second Circuit. Trivial at best, explained the court. The IJ also thought Mr. Chen inconsistent about his relationship with his wife. The Second Circuit explained all that like this, quote, First, Mr. Chen initially testified that he always practices Falun Gong with his wife, but later acknowledged that he sometimes practices without her. Second, while Mr. Chen testified that he and his wife had practiced Falun Gong together twice in the month leading up to the hearing, his wife testified that they had practiced together three times that month. And third, although Mr. Chen explained that he and his wife first met when he approached her to ask her questions about Falun Gong, she testified that she was the one who initially approached him as part of her Falun Gong advocacy, end quote. 
De minimis stuff at best, and not material to the asylum application, explained the Second Circuit quite succinctly after quoting all of that. Finally, the IJ deemed Mr. Chen inconsistent when Mr. Chen initially said that he called his cousin to help him escape China in August or September 2010, but then changed that to saying he placed the call after he was arrested, which was in September 2010, and then later said that it all happened in October 2010. The Second Circuit explained that this inconsistency was an inconsistency and was proper for consideration by the IJ. But the IJ needs to look at everything again in totality without all of those other erroneous perceived inconsistencies. So congratulations, Gary J. Yerman, for a petitioner. All going back. And so, to be quite clear and consistent and not omit anything. Like the Ninth Circuit's precedent post-I.V. Garland, that Supreme Court decision published last term or the term before, the Second Circuit remanded in this case after its first analysis about that 2010 incident and the perceived omissions. The Second Circuit disagreed with that first portion of the IJ's adverse credibility finding and remanded so that the BIA and presumably the IJ could consider it all, quote, under the totality of the circumstances, end quote. The rest of what the Second Circuit said in this decision appears to be a bit unnecessary. That first error by the IJ in the credibility finding required remand. Put another way, after die, if one pillar of an adverse credibility finding falls, then it would seem that the whole thing needs to be reviewed again, because die is now requiring a totality of circumstances analysis for adverse credibility. And that is Chen V. Garland. Next is Amador Duenas v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on July 27, 2023. This case is about the Constitution. Mr. Amador Duenas lost some sort of immigration case before an immigration judge in the BIA, and he represented himself before the Ninth Circuit. Pro se, it appears that he challenged the constitutionality of the fact that it was the BIA itself that ordered him removed rather than, I guess, Attorney General Merrick Garland himself? The decision doesn't say exactly what Mr. Amador Duenas desires. But also the argument isn't crazy, that is, the constitutionality of the BIA, so long as you're willing to adopt the whole-scale destruction of the power of administrative agencies in the United States, as some legal circles certainly argue for at this point. The Ninth Circuit was not, however, having the argument. In a nod to the administrative state, the Ninth Circuit explained that, quote, the president's accountability to the people legitimizes the concentration of executive power in the president. In turn, the president's ongoing supervision and control of executive officials legitimizes the power that they exert in his or her name, end quote. I can hear the Federalist Society grumbling. Applied to the BIA, though, that logic makes their service and their decision in Mr. Amador Duenas's case A-OK. After all, quote, nothing restricts the Attorney General's ability to remove these officials, end quote, that is, the BIA members. And that makes the BIA members generally constitutionally all right. The Constitution's, quote, appointments clause allows Congress to vest the appointment of inferior officers who still exercise significant authority but do not need Senate confirmation in the heads of departments, end quote. 
Immigration judges and BIA members are not, as Mr. Amador Duenas intelligently argued pro se, quote, principal officers that must be nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate, end quote. BIA members are employees. Important employees, explained the Ninth Circuit, quote, inferior officers, end quote, but they are not principal officers. This is because, theoretically at least, the Attorney General supervises their work, and the Attorney General is appointed by the President and confirmed by the Senate, as the Appointments Clause requires. As inferior officers, quote, the Appointments Clause allows Congress to vest their appointment in the head of a department, end quote. Ultimately, though, really, to me, the Ninth Circuit seems to think that the constitutionality of these inferior officer BIA members comes down to the fact that the Attorney General can fire them without limitation whenever he or she wants. So watch out, guys. With constitutional protection comes employment peril. And there you go, a constitutional administrative law refresher without any mention of the immigration facts of this case. And that is Amador Duenas v. Garland. Next is Diaz Mejia v. Garland, published by the Seventh Circuit on July 27, 2023. This case is about withholding of removal and exhaustion. Mr. Diaz Mejia is from Mexico, has been deported in the past, and has re-entered the United States illegally at least two times before. DHS decided to reinstate his initial removal order, which means that Mr. Diaz Mejia is gone again, unless he is deemed to have a reasonable fear of persecution. He was so deemed, and so ended up in withholding only proceedings to argue his claim before an immigration judge. Quote, he claimed that if returned to Mexico, he would face violence from the Union of Tepito, a criminal organization he had been coerced into assisting. The gang approached Mr. Diaz Mejia while he was selling religious keychains around Mexico City and demanded that he use his business travel as a front to transport the gang's drugs. When Mr. Diaz Mejia initially refused, the gang beat him and mocked his religion. Mr. Diaz Mejia stated that police officers were nearby when the beating occurred and ignored it, but he could not say whether they saw it, end quote. So Mr. Diaz Mejia started delivering drugs for the gang under duress. But he stopped and relocated his business to the outskirts of Mexico City to try to avoid the gang. It didn't work. The gang attacked him, hit his head with a gun, and threatened to kill him. He fled to the United States. The immigration judge denied, believing the experience did not rise to the level of past persecution. Nor did Mr. Diaz Mejia show that the Mexican police were unable or unwilling to protect him, reasoned the IJ. Plus, the IJ believed that Mr. Diaz Mejia could leave Mexico City and go somewhere else to avoid the gangs. Convention Against Torture Protection denied too. The BIA affirmed, but only on past persecution and relocation. Seems like Mr. Diaz Mejia hadn't, quote, meaningfully raised, end quote, the relocation issue before the BIA anyway. That is the fact that he could leave Mexico City and go somewhere else and avoid all this persecution and harm. And that came back to haunt him before the Seventh Circuit. Quote, the broad principle that the BIA may ignore some issues as subordinate to other dispositive issues remains good law, end quote. This too was actually a problem for Mr. Diaz Mejia, because on the petition for review to the Seventh Circuit, he actually didn't really argue the past persecution issue. And instead he asked the Seventh Circuit, quote, to assume past persecution, and instead jump to arguing subordinate issues, end quote, I guess relocation. Big mistake, said the Seventh Circuit. The Seventh Circuit deemed the past persecution argument waived, 
That is, that the harm Mr. Diaz Mejia suffered in Mexico didn't rise to the level of past persecution. The Seventh Circuit said that he waived that argument before the Seventh Circuit because he didn't really challenge it at the Seventh. With that issue waived, Mr. Diaz Mejia definitely had the burden to establish all elements for withholding of removal, including whether he could indeed reasonably relocate in Mexico and avoid the harm from the gang. DHS didn't have the relocation burden. And Mr. Diaz Mejia can't meet this burden here, because he didn't really argue the relocation issue before the BIA. Through the Seventh Circuit, then, that meant that Mr. Diaz Mejia was barred by a failure to exhaust the relocation argument, and he couldn't make the argument before the Seventh Circuit that he needed to make to win. Tough stuff. The court therefore held that it was, quote, compelled, end quote, to deny the petition for review. And that is Diaz Mejia v. Garland. Back with the Fourth Circuit, with Tila v. Garland, published by the Fourth on July 28, 2023. After it seems like endless recent wins in the Fourth Circuit for non-citizens, we have a loss. By split decision, though, for what it's worth. Judge Harris concurred and dissented. Mr. Sela is from Albania and entered the United States in 2001, seemingly as a child, and it seems that he didn't have authorization for at least some of that time, because he was ordered removed and physically removed in 2008. But in 2012, he came back. He returned to the United States because he was granted asylum as a derivative of his father's asylum application, which I guess had been pending in the United States for a long time. And I guess Mr. Sela was quite the young man to still be a derivative on the father's asylum application, despite all of that history. Strange stuff, undiscussed in this decision. But back he was, as an asylee. He did not, however, adjust to LPR status under the special and friendly adjustment of status provision for asylees, a common theme on the podcast. So when he committed bank fraud and identity theft three years later, well, he was in trouble. Removal proceedings began in 2019 after some prison time. And in removal proceedings, DHS moved to terminate Mr. Sela's asylum status. An immigration judge granted that motion and terminated asylum status. Then, when Mr. Sela applied for the special adjustment of status for asylees under INA Section 209, the IJ denied that too, reasoning that Mr. Sela was no longer an asylee and couldn't benefit from that more forgiving and easier-to-satisfy adjustment-of-status provision. The BIA agreed with all of that by published decision, Matter of TCA, from episode 96. And I'm not going to lie, I must be losing my mind because I don't remember this case at all. But I did it. Episode 96. One BIA member dissented and believed that INA Section 209, quote, unambiguously establishes that an asylee may pursue adjustment of status, even if his asylum status had previously been terminated, end quote. And that is the narrow issue before the Fourth Circuit now. Mr. Sela is waiting for resolution of all of this in Albania. The Fourth Circuit majority agreed with the BIA majority. Mr. Sela will remain in Albania. That special adjustment of status under INA Section 209 as opposed to regular Section 245 adjustment for nearly everyone else except asylum recipients, forgives many bad things and doesn't, for example, require a visa petition. Under Section 209, 
immigration officials, quote, may adjust to the status of an alien lawfully admitted for permanent residence, the status of any alien granted asylum, end quote. So that's the question, right? What does that mean? What's the temporal limitation on that sentence? Is it adjustment for anyone ever granted asylum or need the applicant currently hold asylum? It is a bit of a confusing sentence. The BIA said that it's the latter in matter of TCA. Gotta currently have asylum to adjust under section 209. Both Mr. Sela and Oil argued before the Fourth Circuit that the statute isn't ambiguous at all and instead supports each of their competing interpretations. Kind of sounds a bit ambiguous, no? Of course, Mr. Sela needs to avoid ambiguity like the plague to avoid Chevron deference, which would then in turn lead to the Fourth Circuit's near-certain deference to matter of TCA. Mr. Sela needs this statute to be unambiguous so Chevron deference doesn't come into play, and the Fourth Circuit just explains what the statute actually means itself. I tend to favor Mr. Sela's interpretation. Don't you? The Fourth Circuit did not. Mr. Sela had a lot of good statutory arguments, legislative history, and even some analogous case law from other circuits. And actually, Sawivi Holder out of the Fifth Circuit in 2014 seems quite on point, as does six-year-old Fourth Circuit precedent. Oil, on the other hand, argued that the statute's use of the word status meant, under the normal usage of the word, the present situation or condition of the person. It described what the person currently had, not something held in the past. The Fourth Circuit agreed with oil, unambiguously. No Chevron deference at all. No ambiguity. The Fourth Circuit believed that because the statute uses the word status, it unambiguously means present conditions, meaning that if asylum status is terminated, the former asylee can't use INA Section 209 to adjust in the future. I'll give it a gong with that Fifth Circuit decision, though, that I mentioned, as the Fourth Circuit seems to recognize in a footnote. Of course, though, in the alternative, the Fourth Circuit explained that it would defer to matter of TCA by applying Chevron deference, which might not exist anyway this time next year. Belt and suspenders all day, every day in federal court. Mr. Seela therefore lost and remains removed. Judge Harris disagreed with the majority's reading of the statute and agreed with the Fifth Circuit. And it got me thinking. Doesn't this all mean, though, that an asylee can't really often, if ever, adjust status under Section 209 in removal proceedings? Because if DHS initiates removal proceedings against an asylee and establishes removability, DHS could also probably move to terminate that individual's asylee status for the same reason that DHS initiated removal proceedings for. And at that point, then, the individual couldn't adjust status anymore under the BIA and now Fourth Circuit's interpretation, at least under Section 209. But that can't be what Congress meant, can it? Adjustment is, after all, a form of relief from removal. After I wrote this, I saw that the Fourth Circuit kind of addressed it in a footnote, but I still think it's a bit inconsistent. But who am I? I am no one. And that is Sela V. Garland. This podcast is sponsored by Journey Business Plans. 
Journey is the leading business immigration plan writing company in the United States. 10 years. And they know immigration. Heck, they started as an E2 company themselves. Journey prides itself on its responsiveness and overall customer service, preparing business plans for E2, EB2 NIW, L1, EB5, and much more. If you don't yet know about Journey and don't want to listen to just me, ask your colleagues. Or even better, try them out. Visit www.journey.com and use promo code REVJOURNEY30 for a 30% discount on your first business plan. That's R-E-V-J-O-O-R-N-E-Y 3-0. Or click on the link in the show notes. This podcast is also sponsored by Capital Good Fund. Millions of families seeking to improve their immigration status face financial barriers due to the high cost of legal services. Nonprofit Capital Good Fund is working to make these resources available to all, especially those who would otherwise not qualify for traditional loans. Certified CDFI Capital Good Fund is partnering with attorneys to provide the financial services families need. They offer affordable financing with no closing fee or down payments for those working with attorneys to move their case forward and get attorneys out of the accounts receivable business. To learn more about the program, email immigration at goodfund.us or call 866-584-3651 and tell them who sent you. Moving on to two from the 11th Circuit. First, Buarfa v. DHS, published by the 11th on July 28, 2023. The 11th Circuit was indeed giving double trouble on Friday. This decision is about I-130 revocation and jurisdiction. This jurisdiction decision challenges USCIS' decision to revoke an approved I-130 petition in federal district court. Spoiler alert, you can't, said the 11th Circuit. Ms. Buarfa is a U.S. citizen. Her husband is not. She and her husband are in a legitimate and bona fide marriage, and so USCIS approved an I-130 petition filed by Ms. Buarfa for her husband in 2015. But two years later, USCIS notified Ms. Buarfa of an intent to revoke that petition. Turns out, USCIS explained, that it believed her husband had previously entered into a marriage with someone else, quote, solely for the purpose of evading immigration laws, end quote. Surely they were divorced by the time Ms. Buarfa filed her petition, the husband and the first wife, that is. But if you do that, if you marry solely for immigration purposes, USCIS can make what we call a Section 204C finding. If made, the beneficiary of the I-130 petition can never have another I-130 approved again, even if the second marriage, like here, and the I-130 itself is all legitimate. The first illegitimate marriage will bar I-130 approval in the future if a Section 204C finding is made, essentially meaning that these people subject to a 204C finding can never adjust status through their second U.S. citizen spouse. Quite the punishment. Seems like USCIS didn't make this Section 204C finding until it had already approved the I-130 petition here, based on that second marriage to Ms. Barfa, and like two years later at that. No matter, said USCIS, it notified everyone that it intended to revoke this approved I-130 as if it had never been granted in the first place. Ms. Barfa and her husband responded to USCIS and tried to prove that that first marriage to that other person was legitimate 
but they failed. USCIS revoked the approved I-130. So Ms. Barfa appealed to the BIA, as the law allows, and then sued in federal district court when that didn't work. The district court, however, dismissed the matter on the U.S. government's motion, relying on INA Section 242A2BII. The 11th Circuit here said that that was the right thing to do. And really, it's true and pretty much agreed upon by the circuits that under the INA, quote, the decision to revoke an approval is not subject to judicial review, end quote. There is the Administrative Procedure Act, of course, the APA, but the APA does not independently confer subject matter jurisdiction upon federal courts. And you need subject matter jurisdiction to get into federal court. To the 11th Circuit, where, as here with the INA revocation statute, quote, a statute bars judicial review or agency action committed to agency discretion by law, the Administrative Procedure Act does not permit judicial review, end quote. Hate that for us, litigators. This despite the Supreme Court's mandated, quote, presumption favoring judicial review of administrative action, end quote. That presumption doesn't apply here, explained the court because the INA statutes at issue are clear. USCIS's authority to revoke a visa petition is discretionary. To the 11th Circuit, that means that the ever-broadening interpretation of the language of the jurisdiction-stripping provision at INA Section 242A2Bii applies. It applies to bar review of discretionary determinations by the agencies. But wait! What if a USCIS adjudicator just wakes up one day and decides to always revoke petitions on Wednesdays, no matter the petition, and actually says that that's what she's doing? Surely that's reviewable as arbitrary and capricious, no? An actual hypothetical asked by an 11th Circuit judge at oral argument on a similar case that I was a part of. And as Oil responded at that oral argument and won in a split decision, no judge, you federal judges, with immense power, still cannot review USCIS's discretionary decision or overturn it. Or as argued in this case, can't federal judges at least review whether USCIS correctly applied the marriage fraud bar at INA Section 204C? That's a mixed question of law and fact at most, no? No. Quote, the INA makes clear that revocation is discretionary, no matter the basis for revocation. The only statutory predicate for revocation is that the secretary deems there to be a good and sufficient cause. The statute does not require that the secretary make any finding of fact or conclusion of law to support that determination. End quote. All power to the administrative agency, so long as that agency is an immigration agency. Now true, it seems to remain good law in the 11th Circuit that federal courts can review USCIS's decision to deny an I-130 petition in the first place, but revoking it after approval is different. And it's a different statute at play. And that all is discretionary. So said the 11th Circuit, it's different. I-130 approvals, like certain other immigration benefits, are not discretionary. So when USCIS denies those things, you can sue. Not so with revoking an I-130 petition. Why Congress would make revoking an approved I-130 discretionary when approving one is not, beats me. But that's what we've got. 
Another way around this jurisdictional madness, USCIS, quote, does not have the discretion to ignore regulations and binding precedent when it carries out the process to reach a discretionary determination, end quote. That's an Eddie Ramos favorite argument. In the 11th Circuit, that's the Kurapati argument. It didn't win the day here, though. Just because the BIA has put forth a standard for making these determinations, explained the 11th Circuit, doesn't mean that federal courts can decide whether USCIS applied that standard correctly or not. At least with INA Section 242A2Bii hanging around like an absolute menace. The wonderful complicated world of immigration litigation and jurisdiction. Comprehensive immigration reform now and forever. Ms. Buarfa and her husband did not succeed. And remember this. Not recommending false marriages, but important to remember. A false marriage will not per se bar a subsequent attempt for a non-citizen to adjust to LPR status under the Cuban Adjustment Act, because spousal adjustment under the Cuban Adjustment Act does not require an approved I-130. And Section 204C only bars subsequent approval of I-130s. Again, not recommending false marriages, but an important issue spot to spot. And that is Barfa v. DHS. Sticking with the 11th Circuit is Clement v. U.S. Attorney General, published by the 11th on July 28, 2023. Here's a case for you. I mean, I could literally say that every time, but this time I mean it. This case is about citizenship. Mr. Clement was born in Liberia in 1971 to parents who were never married. Shortly after his birth, his father obtained a decree of legitimation from a Liberian court. Or in layman's terms... I'm his daddy, world. Then in 1979, Mr. Clement's father naturalized in the United States. Mr. Clement's mother naturalized later, after Mr. Clement turned 18 years old. In 1986, at 14 or 15 years old, and before his mother naturalized, Mr. Clement began to reside in the United States permanently as a lawful permanent resident. Now, I believe that under the citizenship law in effect today, that would make Mr. Clement a citizen. I'm pretty sure, not 100%, always got to look at the statute in these cases. But that wasn't the case in the 1980s. We'll return to that in a sec. Mr. Clement received a few drug and other convictions that made him removable, if he indeed was a lawful permanent resident. But not if he's a citizen. Then he's like all other U.S. citizens. Commit all the crimes you want. That is the official advice of the podcast. But Mr. Clement was not a citizen, said the immigration judge. In 1986, for a child to automatically naturalize when his unmarried parent naturalized, one of three things had to be true. 1. Both parents must naturalize before the child turns 18, and the child must be residing in the United States permanently when the second parent naturalizes. 2. Same thing, except the second parent has died. Or 3. The child's parents have legally separated, and the child is in the custody of the naturalizing parent, or the mother naturalizes and paternity hasn't been established. Confusing and intentionally discriminatory towards men. That historically and so often persecuted protected class. Which is why Congress changed the law later. But for citizenship cases, it's the law in effect at the relevant time 
that counts. These old citizenship laws have repeatedly withstood equal protection challenges, so Mr. Clement is in a bind. Because, right, none of the things that I just said applied to him. His mom naturalized after he turned 18. Both his parents were alive. His parents never married, so they couldn't legally separate. And he can't benefit from his father's naturalization like he could from his mother's at the time, had his mother done it before he turned 18, like his father did. And in any event, his father did the right thing and legitimized his fatherhood. All things that preclude Mr. Clement's automatic naturalization in the late 1970s through the relevant time period in 1986. Seems like Mr. Clement was probably detained during this entire dispute. And the procedural history is pretty complex, which delayed things. And so, after Mr. Clement appealed to the BIA, he withdrew his appeal in writing and asked to just be deported. That's what detention will do to you, even if you think you're a U.S. citizen. The BIA granted that motion. And maybe Mr. Clement was then released into the United States? Unclear. Because Mr. Clement then filed a petition for review with the 11th Circuit, asking it to essentially conclude that he was a U.S. citizen. Too sneaky by half, said the court. As an initial matter, the 11th Circuit reasoned that it can review whether the BIA impermissibly withdrew Mr. Clement's appeal. That's because, as many other courts have held, quote, an order deeming an appeal withdrawn is a final order of removal, end quote. The problem for Mr. Clement is that he did ask for that appeal to be withdrawn. So where's the error, said the 11th Circuit. Heck, Mr. Clement apparently conceded that the BIA properly withdrew his appeal, so he's in deep trouble before the 11th Circuit here. It seems like Mr. Clement recognizes that he's screwed under that old citizenship law. So he therefore argued that that old citizenship statute, quote, unconstitutionally discriminates based on race and gender in a way that precludes him from deriving his father's U.S. citizenship, end quote. Not a frivolous argument, and one that's been made many times in other courts. But I guess apparently not in the 11th Circuit. In this case, though, reason the 11th, none of those courts who reviewed motions to withdraw appeals went on to review the substance of the withdrawn issue. Exhaustion issues, forfeiture of argument, that sort of thing is at play here. I wonder whether those other courts and those other decisions, though, were dealing with the constitutionality of an INA statute, over which the BIA has no authority to rule upon anyway. And I wonder if those other decisions engaged in the uber-important question of U.S. citizenship, a fact that, if established, the BIA has no authority to ignore. The 11th Circuit recognized this unique issue halfway through its decision. Under 100-year-old precedent, quote, the government cannot deport a citizen through the administrative process that it uses for non-citizens, end quote. I hope we can all agree on that. In practice, this has meant that if there is a genuine material issue of whether someone in removal proceedings is a U.S. citizen, even if it arises for the first time on petition for review, the matter's got to go to district court to resolve the citizenship issue. A variety of circuits see this requirement as jurisdictional, something separate and apart from the petition for review process that permits circuits to look at immigration cases tethered to final orders of removal or that is to say, allows federal courts jurisdictionally to look at the very narrow issue of citizenship. Whether this special citizenship framework is jurisdictional was dodged a bit by the 11th Circuit. 
Even if it's jurisdictional, said the 11th, a non-citizen can waive the jurisdictionally important claim to citizenship by withdrawing their BIA appeal. To the court, this rule followed from that same 100-year-old Supreme Court decision. And okay, yes, of course, litigants can waive arguments, even constitutional arguments, if not made or if withdrawn in the court below. But as the Ninth Circuit made very clear this week, the BIA is not a court. And in any event, again, it is axiomatic that the BIA cannot adjudicate claims that challenge the constitutionality of the INA because that's a congressional statute. Only federal courts can do that. Which is why circuits regularly review constitutional challenges that are made for the first time on petition for review. No mention of that in this decision. At least not directly. The 11th Circuit did make clear that it's not disturbing the precedent that forgives failures to bring constitutional claims before the BIA. To the 11th Circuit here, it's different, though. Quote, the problem is that he voluntarily ended the proceedings and explicitly asked to be deported. End quote. I don't know, though. I'm still a bit confused. The BIA still has no authority to give Mr. Clement what he wants, citizenship notwithstanding the INA. Why does it matter what happened before the BIA, then? Also, this rule by the 11th Circuit, though, that is that it can't even review the question because Mr. Clement withdrew his appeal with the BIA, likely conflicts with an 18-year-old 9th Circuit decision. Can you believe that people born in 2005 are 18 years old? For real, for real. That, therefore, is the end of the road for Mr. Clement. If it's any consolation, I highly doubt that the 11th Circuit would have issued this ruling if it actually agreed with Mr. Clement on the substance and was willing to find the old citizenship laws unconstitutional. Just a hunch. And that is Clement v. U.S. Attorney General. Finally, we come to Bekbat v. Garland, published by the 8th Circuit on July 27th, 2023. This case is about reconsideration. There are actually two petitioners in this case, and they are both from Mongolia, and they are married. And I know from my podcast statistics that, in fact, I've had downloads in Mongolia. So this one is for you, Mongolian listeners. The petitioners overstayed their temporary visas in the early 2000s, and about eight years after entering, applied for asylum. Affirmatively. USCS denied, and into removal proceedings they went, where they applied for asylum again. That was denied too, but the immigration judge did grant voluntary departure. Pretty useless because of the unlawful presence bar, but whatevs. The BIA affirmed on appeal, but granted voluntary departure again, giving the petitioners 60 days to depart as the BIA is apt to do. And as the IJ and the BIA are apt to do, they gave the standard warning that if the petitioners move to reopen or reconsider before that 60-day voluntary departure period expires, the grant of voluntary departure automatically expires. The petitioners then petitioned for review to the Eighth Circuit. While on petition for review, though, oil itself moved for a remand to the BIA for administrative closure in 2014 as an exercise of it and DHS's discretion. The board obliged. But then the Trump administration got rid of administrative closure, and DHS moved to reinstate that prior removal order. By the time the BIA got around to that, though, Attorney General Garland had vacated the Trump administration decision getting rid of administrative closure. So admin closure was back on the board, as if nothing had changed. Pun intended. 
No matter. The BIA recalendered and reissued its removal decision from all those years ago. To the BIA, apparently, although admin closure had been warranted in 2014, it wasn't warranted anymore in 2021. So the order was reissued again by the BIA, and it presumably included 60 days to voluntary depart the U.S. again like it did in 2013? Unclear. The petitioners did not, though, move to petition for review again. This time, they moved the BIA to reconsider its decision reinstating the previous order. And in addition to arguing again for administrative closure in that motion, the petitioners again requested the 60 days to voluntary depart the U.S. in the alternative. All of that was denied by the BIA. And actually, the BIA took the position that I had assumed had happened, that by reissuing its 2013 decision, the BIA also regranted 60 days for voluntary departure. But then, said the BIA, by filing a motion to reconsider as the petitioners had, voluntary departure was automatically terminated. A procedural nightmare, this case. So now at the Eighth Circuit, we have a petition for review of a denial of a motion to reconsider the BIA's decision to grant DHS's motion to reinstate an order from 2013 denying asylum and granting voluntary departure, but actually voluntary departure isn't on the table anymore because of the petitioner's motion to reconsider, which is before the Eighth Circuit. Love it. The Eighth Circuit affirmed the BIA. And right off the bat, to be clear, it's only the denial of reconsideration before the Eighth Circuit, not the BIA's decision reinstating itself. Quote, the filing of a motion to reconsider does not toll the time for appeal of the underlying order. End quote. A rule that would have been a much bigger problem had the Supreme Court not overturned the Fifth Circuit's reconsideration requirements in Santa Zacharia this term. Anyway, with only the denial of a motion to reconsider before it, well, that's a tall order for the petitioners. Lots of discretion granted to the BIA there. The BIA must simply give a, quote, rational explanation, end quote, for its denial. Met here, particularly where, said the Eighth Circuit, the petitioners didn't identify cognizable errors of law made by the BIA, as motions to reconsider generally require. Pretty hard to do with an administrative closure-based motion to reconsider. Quite the discretionary thing for IJs and the BIA to do. With that and some other things, the Eighth Circuit deemed the BIA's decision rational. The petitioners lost. No options for voluntary departure, either. Strange case. Here's what I think's really going on. The petitioners have been here a long time, and they now have a U.S. citizen son who's 18 years old. And so in three years, that son will be able to petition for his parents. Then the parents will be able to apply to adjust to LPR status because they entered the United States lawfully all those years ago. Had removal proceedings remained administratively closed, there would have been no removal order for them to overcome. In fact, the removal order that's now been implemented bars them from adjusting status in the United States because USCIS will take the position that with an unexecuted removal order, it, USCIS, lacks jurisdiction to adjust these petitioners when their son inevitably files an I-130 petition for their benefit when he can in three years. DHS's decision to move for reinstatement and the BIA's decision to reinstate that final order of removal after all these years is a humongous problem for the petitioners and their future. DHS chose to reawaken this case only a few years shy of the petitioner's salvation. 
And that is Backbot v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration decisions. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Petzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows that you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, or send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Immigration Review.